I can hardly look at you when I tell this story. Lights were dimmed and people had left. And she said, I've waited till everyone left. My husband's also left. My husband's dying of cancer. And uh, the medication he takes makes him sleepy. But what you don't know is that the great dream of his life was to be able to meet you and to hear you personally. And he's so embarrassed because uh, he realizes he's given the impression that he wasn't interested. If you only knew what this week has meant to us. And she left. <laughs> and I thought, oh, Talk about misjudging and looking at the exterior. You're listening to the Reframing Ministries podcast, providing help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through pain. Here's our host, Colleen Swindoll Thompson. I am delighted to do something I have never done before, and that is to have three generations of swindles in one room. I don't know how that's going to all work out, (laughs) but we're going to see. I have invited my dad and also my son, Austin, to be a part of this conversation as we share with each of you how our family has learned grace, has walked through the process of it, and is continuing to walk through the process of it. So, Austin and Dad, thank you for being my guest today. Absolutely. Ah, Glad to be here. Dad, back in 1990, The Grace Awakening came out, the book that you wrote. Every story or every book has a story to it. What Mm. led to you writing that? Mm. Well, 1990 uh, is a year that represented uh, almost 20 years of being at the same church which was the first evangelical free church in Fullerton, California. I'd gone there in 1971, so by 1990, we were soon to celebrate 20 years there. And so when you're at a church over a long period of time, you you really do know the people, or at least you think you do, and the people feel they really know you, or they think they do. And uh, when some things happen that weren't expected or when, when they hear of things that are happening that they didn't anticipate, the reaction is always interesting. And uh, around 1988, we as a family made a decision about uh, some things in our lives that we would uh, – do and we would enjoy doing that were a little out of the ordinary. And when the word traveled among some in the church, uh, it sort of, we would say, hit the fan and people, a few people reacted uh, negatively and and it sort of took the joy out of what we were anticipating would be only fun and and, and a delight. I'm deliberately not getting into specifics, lest the specific take the attention away from the issue. The issue is when you don't do what someone anticipates you should do or has the strong opinion you really must do so that you square with what they consider the spiritual thing to do, 
then uh, all kinds of things break loose. And uh, statements are made, uh, false information is uh, spread. Cynthia and I both struggled with what was being said about us, and uh, it was uh, really a, a difficult encounter. I have a good friend in the publishing world named Byron Williamson, and Byron was my publisher at the time with Word. And uh, as I talked to him one day, almost with tears of mixture of anger and disappointment over things that had been said and continue to be said, he said, you know what? I think there are things not only you will be learning through this, I think others will be learning through it as well. Who knows, there may even be a book in this. And I thought, the last thing I need is to, do, is to write a book about something that's given me so much disappointment, and, uh, and yet that was exactly where it led. And the result was The Grace Awakening. Now, I didn't have a title for it. I didn't even think of a book. And I went home, I recall, after the lunch with my friend and mentioned it to Cynthia, and she and I both talked about a way that could be, um, I'm searching for the right word. It isn't house this information, but the way we could frame it. That's a good one. Mm -hmm. The way we could shape the information so that it's understood through the positive side. Mm -hmm. Rather than a, a long book and all the negatives and the things people say when they don't like what you've done. And by the way, nothing I was doing was was wrong or sinful or fraudulent, but it was it was presented in a way that that made us look like we were uh, selfish people. So I began to think, how can I approach this in a way that will communicate some things that can be learned by all of us so that we allow people room to be, room to do. And I can, we'll talk about it in our time together, but uh, the ultimate uh, answer is that, is that we have an understanding of grace. Hmm. Not vertical grace, which is what God does for us on the cross through Christ, but horizontal grace in how we treat others. And that's the emphasis of the book. I think many who read that book or are reading the book had already understood what Christ had done for them, but many of them were struggling with letting other people have the space to be and to do what they feel they should be and do. So I began to write the book, and it's interesting, I, I never really specifically addressed the issue that had brought it to the surface. But I went all around that in areas that apply, whether it's the way a person dresses or the kind of music they listen to or the way they wear their hair or uh, the way they, uh, you know, uh, handle things in life or the things they buy, the cars they drive, the house there or houses that they live in. And much of it, quite honestly, is, is, is none of our business. But when we make that our business and we take charge of their lives, then we move quickly into the realm of legalism. And we begin to unload uh, the things that we disagree with and we 
make declarations that are not only offensive, they're inappropriate. And in fact, if I may go this far, they're unbiblical. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were the Pharisees in the days of Jesus who never could understand why the man would have a meal with these sinful publicans, and they were sinful. Harlots and people who rip people off their their money and tax collectors, and they saw him as nothing but what they called in the scriptures a wine bibber, a guy that sits around sipping wine and getting uh, drunk with the rest of them, though Jesus never did that. But he opened his life to those who we might call would be outcasts in Christian communities. Can we just start by his disciples? I mean, look at the friends that he chose. Well, yeah. Right there. Yeah. And, you know, uh, I've said for years, uh, not a pastor I know would choose those 12 as a part of their staff. Uh, Because uh, the general reputation was if you were a tax gatherer or if you once were. Or a murderer. Yeah. Or a bully. Yeah. Even if you're converted and you no longer believe in that lifestyle, if you once did it, you are marked and you are branded and uh, God help you to ever find a place in a Christian community where you will be loved, understood, accepted, and if you will, forgiven. And all of that is in the subject, in the realm of grace. Mm treating others in such a way that they are accepted, they are left in the hands of the Lord if there are changes that need to be made, rather than my feeling the need to give them my list so that they live up to my list. And by the way, my list never ends once I live up to these things. And there's another 10, then there's another 20, then there's another 50 I haven't told you about and much of it goes back to the way I was raised, the church I was once a part of, uh, habits I formed, the way I've looked at things. This is a long answer, but all of that fed into why I would feel the need to put a book together called The Grace Awakening. I felt there needed to be an awakening of grace in our lives, and I still do. Well, as we say in our family— And when you're giving the example of someone giving someone else a list, well, now we have two problems. Not only am I avoiding my own need for sanctification, I'm now putting my list on somebody else thinking I know what they need. Yeah, not to mention just the uh, raw fact of judging. It's everywhere. Yeah. And the reason we're not qualified to judge is we don't have all the facts. And it's amazing what knowing the facts will do to calm most critics, but they're not open. They don't want facts. They want to be heard so that they can blast the individual and hopefully put them out of circulation because they're not falling in line like they think they should. Which is really so much about power. The reason I went into—yes, it is. The reason I went into the earlier comment about being there for almost 20 years— You would think over a 20-year period, almost 20, that you would have earned through the reputation of your life. Over these years, you would think, well, at least they will have the kind of 
trust that I I wouldn't be doing something that's inappropriate. And maybe they'd even be excited because wouldn't we're certainly be nice? ex- <laughs> exactly yeah. how rare it is when when we are rejoicing over what someone else rejoices over. You know, they get a promotion rather than going. That is so good. They must have really worked out that you, the average person thinks, well, why didn't I get the promotion? For that very attitude is what I want to right. say. Or who knows or, why. Or I, I've, I've worked hard, too. Where's my raise? That's all a, 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 in the realm of legalism that says I'm going to put people in my mold and judge them based on how I view them rather than realize God's at work in their lives. Mm -hmm. And I have room in my heart for variety, for breadth, for decisions that I wouldn't necessarily have made. Doesn't mean I would go out and do just what they've done, but they've done it, and it isn't sinful. Let me make that clear. It's not declared in the Scriptures or even implied as sinful. It's just different. Maybe as different as tattoos on the arm. Maybe as different as uh, a hair longer than most people would wear their hair. The, the whole desire in writing the book is to say, everybody, take a deep breath and give everyone else the room you would like to have in your life to be and to do. It's just different from what you would choose. And when you are a legalist, you are looking through the tiny radius, I often say like a little toilet paper roll, Mm -hmm. that tiny or smaller, even a straw, because that is what you ought to live up to. And that is the most dreadful way I can imagine to live one's life. So I wrote the book saying to people, we need lots and lots and lots of grace. Well, some of the things— How's that for an answer? That's a wonderful— You asked me that about an hour ago, and I gave you a—that's a long answer. Well, I think you're—it's nice that you were careful, and I also remember being in the home. And the experiences that I watched you go through, um, one of the questions I'm often asked is, well, what was it like growing up in a pastor's home? You had to have had all these rules. And I'm at a loss to know how to answer that because— there weren't rules that you said, Colleen, you have to do this and this and this because of what people will say about me. See, a lack of grace is selfish. Right. Uh, I often would say to you kids— uh, Know yourself. Don't, don't, like don't yourself. do this for my sake. Mm-hmm. Forget me. You're not maintaining your sexual purity so that your dad will have a good reputation. You're doing that for your benefit. When you compromise in that realm, you hurt yourself. Now, there may be ramifications that fall back on me, but you know what? That's not your concern. Right. Your concern ought to be you. Because when you have grown to an age where you leave the home, you're on your own. It, it allows you to grow up. Now, when you said we didn't have rules, obviously we had rules. But they were rules that were basic to, they to were, life. They were guidelines they, and they, principles. They, they weren't like tight little nitpicking rules about life. Right. You weren't your sister. And one thing if I said to you, uh, one time I must have said hundreds of times, you, you, you were not Carissa. Carissa is Carissa. 
let her be who she you be who you are god wants you to be you and he wants her to be her and our boys the same way that kind of ties into that theme of um that's been tapped on a couple times that you brought up is like kind of quartering the essentials and the non-essentials of the faith into the same bucket and then not yeah. offering grace to both of those. Like for the non-essentials, especially for our generation is like considering it, there is so much emphasis on kind of giving leeway for non-essentials such as tattoos, you know, yeah. such as how you do your hair and how you do makeup and stuff. So much more of it is like, where's your motivation lying in that? Like is your motivation based on Christ? And so for different people in the family, it's like, like, are you offering grace in the non-essentials? and in the essentials, you know, instead of just lumping them in the same bucket. Exactly. And when we make non-essentials essentials, essentials mm-hmm. we move quickly into the realm of legalism. If it's not essential, don't make a big deal out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, you've also got to determine, is it essential because Scripture states it as essential, or is it because you've always believed it that way? Yeah. Are you, are you focusing more on eisegesis or exegesis? That, that's right. That and, and often uh, you bring into the family, you're, you know, not often, you always do, you bring into the family the roots of your own life. I mean, the way I was raised, the way Cynthia was raised, naturally fell into the family and, and the things we did and didn't do. You know, uh, we learned growing up that there were a lot of things to learn from the teenagers. Frankly, we were warned by people, wait till they get to be teenagers, man. You think it's hard now, wait till they turn 14 or 13 or what. And I would say to Cynthia, I I can't wait till they turn and think for themselves. It's wonderful. I mean, I've loved it. And if you don't live your life fearful or angry, it's fun because they will ask why. Mm. And they should. Absolutely. That's how you learn in life. I, I, I never learned how something worked without asking why. I remember one time the kids, all, all you kids wanted to sleep outside. And I said, no, 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 no sleeping outside. <laughs> you, you know, you get bit by the spiders and, and there might be somebody crawl over the back fence and they would get you and, <laughs> and you shouldn't sleep. out. You might get cold. And Cynthia said to me, why are you saying they can't sleep outside? I mean, we have a wall around our house. We're not going to lock the back door and keep them outside. <laughs> They've got to come inside to go to the bathroom. So what, what's wrong with her sleeping in a little tent out back? And she developed a rule I will never forget, and I love her so much for teaching me I this. know which one you're going to say. Unless we have to say no, let's always say yes. I want to say that again because there's such grace in it. Unless we really must say no, we're going to find a way to say yes. And you know what? It worked. (laughs) And some of my best memories are sleeping in that camper outside. Uh, Yeah, and and you you slept outside, and I thought they lived. They made it. No spider (laughs) bit them. You know, the snakes didn't come. Uh, they didn't set the house on fire. They, well, kind of it happened out. at one point, but we'll leave that one out. Yeah, what I don't know doesn't, doesn't Exactly. Hurt. I've almost set the house on fire several times. <laughs> I don't want to know that quite yet, but subject. that's all right. One thing I want to make a distinction, though, is you're saying in matters of principle, of course we give grace and let go of our lists. But even if it's a sinful way of life that somebody else is living, such as when Christ would eat— with a harlot or when he would eat with someone who was lost, they were living a sinful lifestyle. 
He didn't were, cut them off. In fact, he invited them in to sit and talk with them. One thing that I have loved having Austin back at the house is when he has Bible studies at the house, you invite people who believe all kinds of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it kind of correlates with, I think it might be a mark where Jesus says, you know, I didn't come for the healthy, but I came for the sick. And it's like if we ignore people who have atheism as their worldview or, or struggle with same-sex attraction or have a, a various smorgasbord that we say, well, that's not really Christianese, you know. If we don't bring them in or talk to them or invite them, like how are we replicating grace that Christ showed people 2,000 years ago? And some of the best conversations that I've had have been with people that you've invited over who have—they have no interest in the Lord. Let me give you a good example. When we were in Fullerton, I'll go back there because that was back in the era when the the world of the the uh, Jesus movement, the hippies, sort of were coming in, and and they would they would come into our church. They'd walk in barefoot. They'd walk in with swimsuits on. Uh, some would come in without shirts, and uh, our I got to say it for our congregation. They were terrific. Uh, We talked about it, and we said, look, what a great opportunity. We live near the beach. They're curious. Most who came in had never, get this, had never been inside a church service. They had no idea what we were doing. And look at the opportunity. It was it was fabulous. In it fact, this the true. second chapter of the Grace Awakening book, I think it's the second chapter, starts out with lest you think, because I live in California, mm. I can write on freedom and I can write about this. No, this is not because I live in California. No, it had nothing to do with geography. This is because we need a wake up call. Yeah. It's probably I'm gonna tell you something. I'm no longer living in California. I live in Texas, and it's much more conservative here. But I am more a believer in grace now than I was there then. And I really was a believer in it there. But geography has nothing to do with it unless you want it to. And if you want to listen to others around you, then geography will determine your spiritual walk. Uh, and uh, let me add this. Uh, Fear drives a lot of legalists. I mean, what will I do if? Well, you may have to think, you know. Or <laughs> you, you if may you're actually flex, have to you, think you, you, you will start with accepting. Well, what do they do when I'm not around? Well, you probably don't want to know. They probably will be not that disappointed. <laughs> yeah. They'll be and, fine. And, you know, I don't think Jesus sat there with a harlot and talked about how she ought not be a harlot uh, the whole time they were having their meal together. Now, it may have come up. She may have felt guilty. When you're around somebody like Jesus, you probably feel like, man, my life doesn't come anywhere near a life like that. I wonder if he even knows about me. And she didn't realize he knew everything about her. Uh, and we're, we're singling that out, and we could pick out the guy that's ripped off people financially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something that— uh resonates with me with that is like in the 2016 grandparenting summit, you know, we talked about how there is such a good emphasis through the generations that we've had, like in our family on principle. And I think that is something that kind of differentiates people that are 
grace-oriented versus legalistic-oriented is that the legalist so often will put gravity on the consequence of a situation happening. The person who has that, that weight put on them of the consequence happening doesn't focus on the principle of, like, why it's wrong or right. They're just worried about what's going to happen in the aftermath. But in, like, in our situation when we've grown up with mom and with Tobin— it's been so much more of an emphasis on, like, principle. I'm like, well, how about we think about, like, what this is? How about you think about if it's right or not instead uh-huh. of thinking about the consequence afterward? If the consequence comes afterwards, well, duh, that has to happen because it's a reaction to your decision or, or like, what you've chosen to do with your life. But you learn through the Beautiful. Principle. And yeah. you know what? You're going to leave the house. You're going to go to that school. Yours happened to be University of Oklahoma. Ashley's University of Texas A&M. And uh, two different schools, but a world— much bigger, much broader than the home where you were reared. And you know what? You didn't have a breakdown. You didn't you you didn't have a meltdown. I didn't see either one of you uh, you know struggling with uh, people that weren't reared like you were. You had been taught to think. Mm. And that goes well with mom's quote, which she was going to say about always leaving room for the opposing viewpoint. Yes. In the chapter that you have on disagreeing, it's called Graciously Disagreeing and Pressing On. Mm. And you wrote four principles that I think are timeless. The first is always leave room for an opposing viewpoint. Mm -hmm. And then you brought up teenagers. If you don't have room for an opposing viewpoint, you won't do well when you have teenagers. That's right. Teens can be among our best teachers. Opposition is good for humility. Mm. And then it says, number two, if an argument must occur, don't assassinate. You know, that's a great tendency on the part of those that are really opinionated. I'm certainly opinionated. Friends of mine are opinionated. But when it comes to relationships, uh, you have to be careful that when there's disagreement that you don't go after a person's character. That's a low blow. Name-calling, gaslighting, bringing up the— yeah, it's, yeah. It's, My yeah. wife doesn't get hysterical. She gets historical. Yeah. It's one of yeah. the funny things that we <laughs> laugh about. Right. And you can so easily turn there when you run out of an answer. Then you go for their character. Yep. That, that's a dirty blow. That's not fair. If you don't have an answer, simply say, you know what? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That catches me off guard. I'm not sure. I've never had any teenager look at me when I say I didn't know and mock me. I find that they respect that kind of honesty. Right. Yeah, that's something in our generation where, or for the millennial generation, like so many of our people think that we have to have all the answers in order to stand an argument, in order to uh-huh. have something. And so out of that fear of not having all the facts and figures, they won't go out and talk to people about Jesus. Right? Exactly. Because if, if, someone, if someone brings up this idea that really contradicts or juxtaposes Christianity and you have the answer, I guess people feel like they have that kind of shame, you know, that mm-hmm. they carry with them. And it's a codependent learning when you're walking with other people in Christ. You're trying to learn these things. It doesn't mean you have to always have the answer. Right. I think something great happens when you're talking with an unbeliever and he or she brings up something that you don't know. Mm-hmm. And you say— Let's look into you know, that. that. That is a great question. Yeah, I'll find that out and I'll get I'll back to you about it. Out. That's and what I, we always did. I, I, I absolutely have never thought about that. Mm. What a great question. I mean, that person then realizes you really are willing to talk. Right. You're not there to lecture. 
You're there to reason. And then it's not about being right in an argument. It's about pursuing truth. Exactly. And like that's a big discernment that I feel like argumentative styles and rhetoric has kind of lost, you know. Um, there's a great movie in 1957. It was 12 Angry Men. And oh, the yeah. theme, I love that movie so oh, much. Yeah. And the, a strong theme throughout it is like, well, is he guilty or not guilty? What is the truth? And there was one guy who was just so focused on the argument and him being right inside of the argument. And that doesn't work well for arguments. He was trying to assassinate the other guy with argumentation. I hear you. But then the protagonist antagonist was pursuing truth yep. in that whole situation. And you can really discern that really easily. Yep. Yep. Now, you were going over four principles. You got yeah, two of them. What were the other two? The other two were if you don't, if you don't get your way, get over it yeah. and get on with life. Yeah. And then the fourth is sometimes the best solution is separation. And you talked about Paul, Barnabas, John Mark, all the yeah. conflict that went they on They stood there. toe-to-toe. They hammered it out. Paul said, I'm not bending on this. And Barnabas said, I'm not bending on this. So Barnabas took John Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas and continued another journey. I have seen situations where the best solution was agreeing to disagree. Mm. Now, let me add this. Not carrying a grudge, not putting someone on on, on a blacklist, writing them off, because later, as in the case of Paul with John Mark, he says, I want you to bring John. And by the way, Paul's in a dungeon waiting for death. And he said, I, he's profitable to me for the ministry. That's John Mark. And had he assassinated, right. there would have not been that relationship. Well, and not only would Paul have been bitter, uh, John Mark would have said, I want nothing to do with him. But they didn't do that. Right. And so you can disagree Without being ugly. You know, I want to interject something here because this is something that that Tobin and I have chosen with our adult children. And it's very sad when I hear from parents or from children, young adults, whose parents have kept them to a list. When Ashley and Austin moved out, they moved out. And I didn't give them a list that, well, you need to do this. You need to do that. You need to do this. I had one woman write me saying her mother stalked her Facebook page, her social media pages, and then was all over her for whatever the daughter said or did. And my first thought was, what mother has time for that? (laughs) But I haven't looked at Austin or Ashley's social media pages because I have my own life. They have their own life. They've chosen things very different from me. And then some things have been the same. But I've learned from them. How come you made that choice? Let's talk about that. What was interesting with that? See, this is grace at its best when you are able to say they have their life. And that also means I have my life. Now, back to the beginning of this talk today, I realized that there were some people that didn't want me to have that kind of life that I was pursuing because it didn't fit the mold of what they thought ought to be a part of my life. Uh, who died and left them in charge of my life? Only one. His name is Jesus. And whenever he says something, I'm listening. Because if he wants me to do so, I want to do it. But you know it's amazing? The room he gives you, the breadth he gives you, The freedom he gives you, he gives you truth. And what does that do? It sets you free. Something that you didn't say at the very beginning, I think it's very important to bring up 
because you're very kind in in letting the past be the past. But I remember more than several occasions where you just put your head in your hands and at times would weep. And I remember you coming home putting a stack of mail on the table. And you said, well, here's the hate mail for the week. And I just, I was crushed because I saw how generous you and mom had been with other ministries and giving of the resources that the Lord had mm-hmm. given to you. You had given so much and built so much. Nobody knew anything about that. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing is true of every hate letter. They don't have all the facts. What they have is a feeling regarding disagreement, and they've decided to put it into writing. It's a good place to pause and say to everyone listening, be really careful about recording your disagreements. Be real careful. It's all over social media now. Someone has said it, write disagreements in dust. Mm -hmm. Write the compliments in marble. Etch those in marble. But when you've got disagreements, don't make a record of it. And because I'll tell you, Almost without exception, you'll look at it later when you're older and more mature, or you've suffered, or you've been through a similar situation, and you will think, why on earth did I say that? Interesting, some of those people who wrote back then, years later, not all, but some wrote and said, I feel badly that I wrote what I did. I only had a portion of information, and I judge you on the basis of that. And, you know, part of that is just life. So learning how to walk through life, knowing not everybody is going to agree, that's that's just part of being an adult. And thinking that everybody should agree <laughs> is a pretty immature way to live. Right. But the fact is, for those of us who determine we're going to walk in grace and live by grace— Everyone needs the room to grow, and I'm going to add this, even to fail. Mm -hmm. They need the room to fail. And not here. I told you so. Right. I will tell you this. uh, When I ask people to tell me about the times when they really learned life's lessons, it often grew out of a failure, something that they should not have done or the consequential situation they found themselves in, and they regretted it, but it was too late to do anything. But, man, did they learn. Well, had they not gone through that, they wouldn't have learned. Interesting. People who become people of grace often have scars Mm. from the past, brought on by people who've really beaten them up. The psalmist writes, it was good for me that I went through this suffering. It it, it was good for me. Now, at the time, it isn't good. But later you look back and you realize, I I learned a lot. You know what? Because I went through that, The Grace Awakening is now a book in print that would never have been written had it not been for what we were going through. Now, now here's another question question on the other side of it is, uh-huh. because writing is very therapeutic, did you have to work through some of the anger as you were writing? Oh, yeah. 
Sure, and that's where a good publisher helps. That's where a good editor helps. That's where a good spouse helps. Because everything I write, I read to Cynthia. This even goes to husband-wife relationships. When you really have grace in that relationship, you're teachable. Mm -hmm. I'm not trying to put myself up as the big example, but listeners become learners, and learners become change agents, Mm -hmm. you know. I think that relates really well to Act 7 where like the Sanhedrin are listening to Stephen kind of speak. And then towards the end of it, he's like, you stiff-necked people. Like you still don't get it. And they shut their ears and there's a gnashing of teeth and they stone him. And it's such a weird story to see like Saul at that time. They laid their coats down at his feet. And so he as well, in a way, is agreeing that, you know, this is right, that Stephen is being stoned. Well, yeah, he's standing alongside going, stone him. And everyone is shutting their ears. And then the transformational process of this is he becomes a changing. Agent and he says, where sin is, grace abounds even more, yeah. you know? And that's such an antithetical, like, character swap for him. Uh-huh. From Saul, no grace at all whatsoever. Right. Basically being extremely legalistic. He was, a, he was an expert in Judaic law. Right. And then coming out later and saying, you know, there's this incredible amount of grace that overflows. Yeah. And I wonder how much he thinks about Stephen at that time. Mm-hmm. You then, do wonder that, don't you? And then you think, like, as well, you can relate that principle to our day. It's like, well, where have you shut your ears and gnashed your teeth? And then yeah. later where you learn grace, yeah. especially with your family, because it, it can be a lot of tension there, you know. Yeah, Yeah, one thing I want to say is I wish there was more room for people to not look at another person and think 10 years later, they're the same person. If transformation from God is a continuing process, we are all in the process of being changed. I I hope I'm not the same person a year from now than I am today. Or the person you were Five years ago. I'm definitely yeah. not the person yeah, I was five years ago. I've heard Cynthia put it this way. Anytime I think someone is too far gone to change, I remember the Apostle Paul. Mm-hmm. Saul of Tarsus is on his way to imprison and, if necessary, kill Christians. Listen to this, everybody. On the way to Damascus. And he is the sine qua non of a Pharisee, and he gets knocked to his knees and ultimately onto his face, and the Lord says, Saul, Saul. He says, who are you, Lord? And begins the transformation, and he becomes the apostle of grace. (laughs) Think about that. And think, think about that change, that transformation in that life. Saul and, would have been a helicopter parent, you know? <laughs> oh, yeah, if, he would have been. If Saul had social media, he would have been over, and if he had kids, you know, he would have had been over all of his kids, checked up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, seen everything, and then relating, it, relating it and shaming it, you know? Absolutely. From Saul to Paul, the grace is like, yes. if there was social media, it'd be like, you have your own choice to do your own thing. Yeah, and you know what? When he writes about those days, those years— He said, it's all garbage. When I look back, all that prestige, all that stuff that I was modeling and all the reputation I'd built, it's like sewage compared to the righteousness that there is in Christ and the changes he's brought. A person of grace has no room for pride. It's not, I'm now proud of how broad I am and all. It's not that is that you are so grateful that you're not shackled 
mm-hmm. with a rigidity that once characterized your life. And it's so freeing when, when the Lord does his work in a way that is clearly only he could do it. Yep. Then the celebration, yep. you're free to celebrate rather than, oh, I hovered over you and you right. had to change because I did. It's me, God did it. Yes, right. Let, let me tell you something really encouraging, and neither of you would know this. I thought after writing the book, and I said to my publisher, "We got to be ready. I'm going to get, <laughs> I, 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 I'm going to get such flack for this." He said, "Don't be too sure of that. You're going to free many a life." Okay, good example of how I'm not the prophet, and my publisher was. I didn't keep all the letters, but had I, not an exaggeration. A full file drawer would be packed with the letters that say, thank you for making me aware of a truth that I would have otherwise missed. It's the most gratifying kind of letter you can get Mm. where you write something out of a crucible and someone says, what a deliverance this is for me. I can think of one where the lady wrote me and she said, my husband is a pastor. And I had to hide the fact that I was reading your book because it was a book our church had made clear. And he's the pastor. You don't read this book by Swindoll. Yeah, there have been schools that have outlawed yeah, that book. And, yeah. And, and, <laughs> and, and she said, I, I, I hid it from him. And little by little, I would say things, not telling him where I had picked it up. And he said to me one day, where'd you learn this? Or that's not what I usually have taught. And she says, I'm going to tell you where I've learned it. And then she finally had the courage to show him the book. And and he kind of got a chill up his back realizing that she had been reading the very thing that they had banished. Well, he read it. You know what happened? He... um, he left that ministry, and he, she said to me, I am finishing my degree, happened to be in counseling, as the Lord has opened up a whole opportunity for me to minister in areas I never dreamed I would be. My husband is now ministering in a realm of grace like you would be so pleased to hear. And we have been written off by the former church. Sure. They shun us. They have put us on their, you know, blacklist, and that that can happen. But she said, I want to thank you because for the first time in our life, we are free and truly fulfilled. That's gratifying to know that something that grew out of this crucible became for some and for many, really, a, a ray of hope, a book of relief, if you will. Yeah, because there are so many different, I mean, even denominations and lists after list after list. It's exhausting. I think I'm doing great if I can get the first and second commandment down. <laughs> I mean, those two alone yeah. are life's work. Yeah. I think one of the good things um, about having multi-generational conversations like this is we can each share how we have learned grace in our own family, Mm. lest we leave the impression that, oh, we have this wonderfully gracious family that is always getting along. Mm. (laughs) 
(laughs) Just like the example that Bubba just gave, you know, like that was a pastor. And there was a congregation that looked to him. It was. And they, like the congregation, I mean, they ex-fellowshipped them, which is a sign of like legalism after you kind of branch off from that. But at the same time, you look at that and you say, okay, well, how is that embodying grace? Or how is their family embodying grace? How is the pastor embodying grace if the woman had to hide the fact that she was reading a book about grace, you know? So if you're listening, we understand that just because there's a pastoral family doesn't mean everything is laid out and directly straightforward. And like, you still have to work through your stuff, you know? You do. Just because you know the book doesn't mean you are applying the book to your life and letting it change you graciously, you know? And it's so easy when you're a pastor to just control everything. You know, you're, you're going to control the church. You're going to control your kids. You're going to control your other other people's lives. And what a terrible way to live. It's a, It was a great day in my life when I realized um, I'm responsible for preparing, studying correctly and carefully, and delivering as well as I can a, a body of truth and what we call a message from God and then get out of the way and let people deal with it on their I used to feel like I had to I didn't follow them but I I was you know close behind thinking oh, what are you going to do about this or are you going to change this I am so free now because I've done my part. Now it's the Spirit of God's job to do his part. And does he ever? And when he does it, he gets the glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah. great? Like I've said to my kids, my consequences only go so far. Run into the Lord's consequences. Oh, yeah. He has limitless resources. Yeah. So let him do his thing. Yeah, he knows everything. And I don't. And I don't need to. It was, it's a great day in our lives when we can say— I'm going to shut down the need to know everything about everyone and to have a statement about it, uh, an opinion. I don't know enough to have an opinion, and that's okay. And let's read Scripture and not think of somebody else's name. Yeah, that's good. Just Rather stop saying, thinking about everybody glad My husband's here so he can hear what the preacher yes. saying today. Think I'm so grateful I'm here. Yes. To hear what's being said. This is for me. Yes. I'm starting to teach the book of James. Uh, at least I started in January. And uh, one of my comments toward the end of that first message was, I'm in this with you. We're, we're going to do this together. And when we get to the parts that are that are really uncomfortable, I want you to know they'll be uncomfortable for me too because mm-hmm. I struggle with the same things. Mm-hmm. We're not in separate worlds. I think that frees people to know the one who is preaching also has struggles that he has to work through. Just when you get to James and he's talking about the tongue, can you just give me a heads up? Because I'm going to have to go to church with my head down. You know what? I I, I told the people yesterday, when I get to the tongue, you're going to feel about as comfortable (laughs) as sitting on a coat hanger. All the way through this message on the tongue, you're going to feel like, James, James, lighten up, lighten up. Because the tongue is the last muscle we ever tame, if we ever tame it. And one of the strongest yes, in the is. entire body. Yes, it is. And you know, you can tame everything else, but that tongue will. In 15 minutes, it'll be lashing out. After saying the greatest things within minutes, 
it can be over the top. So let's let's move into some of the more personal parts. Dad, because you're older than us, we'll let you go first. <laughs> you're the it's winner. Discernment. Exactly. Uh, my statement. What is an example that you can share where you learned grace in an unforgettable way? Uh, I was teaching at uh, Forest Home, and it's a conference center in Southern California. The particular conference begins with a uh, with a meal, and everybody kind of gets to know each other. And I met this couple I'd never met before. She was just vivacious. He was a little timid, but he was friendly. And I noticed in the meeting that night that I wasn't into my talk five minutes before he was sound asleep. <laughs> and uh, she was on the edge of her seat, and he was literally had his chin on his shoulder. He's just out. And I thought, boy, that's a probably she's here hoping that he'll really gain something from the time here, but he's obviously not interested. Uh, by the last night, it was obvious that he was uh, just there because of her. Had you said something to mom no, during the week? No, not a word. Okay. Not a word. I kept it to myself. And uh, she said to me before that final Friday evening, she said, may I see you afterwards? And I said, oh, absolutely. Uh, and I knew she wanted to talk about an unhappy marriage, and I was hoping for the, for the right words to say. Oh, I can hardly look at you when I tell this story. And she said to me, uh, lights were dimmed and people had left. And she said, I've waited till everyone left. My husband's also left. My husband's dying of cancer. And uh, the medication he takes makes him sleepy. But what you don't know is that the great dream of his life was to be able to meet you and to hear you personally. And he's so embarrassed because uh, he realizes he's given the impression that he wasn't interested. If you only knew what this week has meant to us. And she left. (laughs) And I thought... uh, Talk about misjudging and looking at the exterior and thinking that every person who falls asleep is not interested when, in fact, the medication keeps the pain at a level where he can bear it long enough to make it through the week. By the way, he died about three weeks later. And I finally, finally, with the grace of God as my help, I finally forgave myself, but I I did tell her that I had misjudged him. She said, oh, I understand. Many people misjudge him. But she said, I love him dearly, and I hate to lose him. But you don't know what being here has meant to him and to me. Well, how's that for a lesson on grace? I Yeah, I don't think I need to share any of my stories. Would you like I to go learned, in, Austin? <laughs> I learned never, and I mean this as a preacher, and I've been doing this almost 55 years, Never try to guess why people fall asleep. Some have worked all night, and they came, and they just can't stay away. Others are on medication. Others, admittedly, are struggling through things, and they can't listen, so they check it out. It's not of my business why they sleep. My business is to make it as interesting and as pertinent as I can, 
and to leave the results with God. That's a classic example, and our listeners may have heard me give that before, but Cynthia says every time you give that illustration, it makes everybody pause and realize how we judge without knowing the facts. Stop doing that. Learn from my mistake. You don't know enough to form that opinion about why this person is doing what they're doing. If you knew everything, the last thing you'd be is his judge. How do you follow that, Austin? I don't follow that. (laughs) That was really good. I think um, in learning grace, it has been through Jonathan. Yeah, I can agree. Jonathan is your son who is a very special person. And I thought— 21 years old. I know. And I thought— Autistic. And so and many a more. number of other things um, that only you know. Fully. Yeah, before I had kids, parents whose kids were behaving any certain way yeah. outside of what I thought. Yeah, you know, who was I to know? And then it would take two or three hours to get to church, and I was so exhausted. And then when things were said, because he wasn't able to handle being out. I didn't go to church for two years. Um, Part of that was because I was hurt. But part of that is because I had hurt others. And the Lord dealt with me and continues to. So now when other individuals, whatever it is, they may walk slow, drive slow. One of the things that we had in with the kids, they'll remember me saying, well, maybe their cat died today. We don't know. <laughs> and that's where they're well, you, know, uh, you don't know. Honestly, uh, I had a woman in our church, and the, her greatest companion was her dog. And say what you want to, react like you wish. But to her, after, I think, 15 years with that dog, when she lost that dog, life pretty well ground to a halt. I need to have grace in my life to say, I don't have a relationship that close with an animal, but she does, and I respect her and all that that meant to her. And when you do that, it it helps you give people room. I love it that you said some are just slow. And and we all move so quickly, and we think quickly, and we drive fast, and we, we decide fast, and we... We want to be waited on fast at a restaurant, and we like to be served fast. And no one gave you the right to be fast. Some people can't be and choose not to be, and that pleases God that they're not. That's the part of it that has to be remembered. Because they force us to address our impatience. They do. That's just life with Jonathan, you know? I mean, like, <laughs> Every well, day. Because well, that's a big thing with John is like that you are put in a spot where your impatience is faced with his inability to be fast. That's not putting him on the spot and saying, thanks, John. Thanks for being slow. Now sure. I can't take my time. It's like maybe the Lord is using Jonathan's autism as well to help us see like where we are trying to be fast in things. And so one of the – I can agree with the statement that you said about not being able to give grace 
to people like Jonathan. We were in church uh, a little bit of time ago, and Jonathan is uh, very loud with his singing. Mm-hmm. And he's very, uh, I will and say— he does he, not sing on tone. Yeah, yeah no tone. <laughs> his tonality's out the window. But he praises but with his he heart. Pra- yeah, yeah. You can just see how he has just this gushing heart that just wells up this praise. And then people around, you can kind of see their side eyes, you know? They'll kind of move. They'll kind of look at them or they'll throw so some glances. Irritated. And it's like, yo, dude, like, what are you doing looking at them like that? And you can't even – you don't even want to worship here. And he's trying to worship here. How are you possibly showing grace in that scenario? No, I, I love how Diedrich Bonhoeffer talks about, like, cheap grace and costly grace. Mm-hmm. It, it seems like in America it's becoming more prominent. At least I definitely know with my generation. It's like you become a master at showing cheap grace. Like, I will show you grace up until this point. Pretty sure Jesus goes way beyond that with anybody. Um, I mean, in John 9, 3, he went beyond that. You know, he says, like, it wasn't this man's sin or his parents' sin that causes blindness. Right. And that's a that, that's a verse that we relate to our life with Jonathan. You know, it's so the works of God can be shown through him. And maybe Jonathan singing in a really poor tone, a song that adores Christ in a way that kind of centers attention around him accidentally just because he's not the best at singing. Maybe that is just such a powerful tool to help teach someone grace. You know, I don't know it. I've always loved it about you, Austin, that you are so tender toward John. I just— I melt when I think of it. I want to say if you're listening and you have a sibling with autism, I understand that that's not always true because I was not always tender with Jonathan. Like that's a section of my life where I look back and I was and I just think, oh, man, and that crushes you really deeply because Jonathan has severe disabilities. You know, Jonathan's not a savant. He doesn't have a lot of splinter skills. He can't do a lot. So he's really limited in his scope. That's something when we're talking about personal experiences that I can look to and say, well, the Lord's really showing me grace in this area of how to be gracious towards Jonathan because I used to kind of project expectations on him because we're brothers. You know, we've grown up together. He should know how to do this. He should know how to do that. And when you put that kind of image on somebody of what they should be able to do and you disregard that they have disabilities or you disregard their life circumstances, that is no way showing love or grace at all. And so I'm glad to say that, like, it was definitely a transformational process, learning how to show grace to Jonathan. And you know what it was? It was the Lord saying, you've got some stuff you got to work on, dude. Like, you really got to work on this area because— you can't be harsh with your words like that anymore. You can't push him around anymore. Because as much as you would want to say it, he will never be able to yeah. do. Yeah, he has. I mean, I, I love the kid to death. And I will admit, he he has such an interesting memory to where he'll remember something six years ago. He'll remember the colors, the room, the location, the right. details. But then 10 minutes ago, he can't remember that you asked him to put his clothes up. Right. And so you have to have grace in that element, in that right. Or else your life is just going to be constricted to anger and mm. harshness. Mm-hmm. And especially with siblings, like, because you, you do share some responsibility when it comes to having family members with disabilities. How old are you, Austin? 24. 24. How old are you, Colleen? I don't know. I'm kidding. <laughs> 51. And I'm 84. So we've got a multi generational threesome here where we've been able to get our arms around a subject that has no age limit and is not in any way related to a particular age where you can learn it. But whether you're 24 or in your 50s or in your 80s, grace is always appropriate. Mm -hmm. It's always needed now more than ever. Once you pray, Austin, let's wrap our time up together. Will you do that? Sure. Lord, we thank you for the 
time you've provided us. Um, we thank you that you've allowed us to have this space to talk openly about a subject that is important and is transgenerational, whether uh, whether our lives are spent in the 1900s, the 2000s, the 3000s, if it goes that long. I pray that people would carry that element of grace with them, um, an element that overcomes forms of legalism that constrain and bind and choke people out of relationships. We thank you for reframing ministries and that it is so dedicated to helping people through these kind of situations that feel binding and shackling. We just pray for people who, just around America and around the world, that um, feel this pressure and this weight to be this and to do that and uh, to have this expectation fulfilled. But Lord, we know that the greatest expectation that we can fulfill is serving you and laying all of our problems down at your feet. Lord, we know in Psalm 103 that you abound in love and mercy and grace, and we thank you that you are Lord that does that and that we can, we can take these lessons and we can take these principles and apply them to our lives. And it's in Christ's time I pray. Amen. Well, hey, gang, wasn't that an amazing conversation with my dad, Chuck Swindoll, and my son, Austin? I hope that you found it very encouraging as we discussed ways to reframe and look at grace. The message of grace that we can give to one another is probably one of the biggest gifts of all. You can find the show notes and reference resources in the podcast description on our website, reframingministries.com. In addition to that, if you'd take a few moments to rate and review the podcast, I would be so thankful. You can also connect with Reframing Ministries through our social media sites such as Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and other various platforms. You can write to me personally at reframingministries at insight.org. I would so love to hear from you. Thank you again for joining us today at Reframing Ministries. If you enjoyed this podcast, let us know in the comments on our website. Our desire is to provide biblical help, hope, healing, and humor for people walking through unique and challenging segments in life. And in order to provide for more people, we'd love your support through prayer, sharing this content with friends, and partnered support. Reframing Ministries and Insight for Living Ministries operate entirely and only on your generous gifts and donations. You can partner with us and donate to Reframing Ministries through our website. The Reframing Ministries podcast is a production of Insight for Living Ministries.